Well, we come now to our new, a new section, our introduction to systematic theology. And before we begin this section, let's just kind of look at where we are on the map. You know, if you follow the flow of the Shorter Catechism, you know, after we learned about the overarching purpose there in question one, we considered the doctrine of Scripture. And then we looked at uh, the doctrine of God, then the doctrine of God's eternal decree, and then creation, and then Pastor J.P. spoke of providence, and then we covered the doctrine of sin. Pastor J.P. then uh, goes to the doctrine of the covenant, and then Pastor Enro just recently finished the doctrine of Christ, covering questions 21 through 28. Of course, we haven't done this perfectly <laughs> as far as addressing all of the questions, but that's the overall idea here. And that leads us then to question 29, which is where we're going to start today. And that question is, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? And the answer is, we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by the Holy Spirit. It's this question then that launches us into consideration of what some theologians call the order of salvation. And here, we not only read in these questions how redemption is applied, but what exactly is applied, namely, effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, all of which we experience in this life, and then what is applied at death and beyond, consisting of the perfecting of the soul in heaven and in the resurrection of the body. So that takes us to question 38. Now, this, may, this plan may change <laughs> afterwards, uh, we may hone in a little bit more specific, but that's where we're headed. And as I've already mentioned, some would call this, this whole section the order of salvation, the order salutis. But I'm going to go a different route, and I'm going to borrow from the title of an excellent little book by John Murray called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And I really love that title for this section because it summarizes well what questions 29 through 38 are about, especially the redemption applied part. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, our Lord's accomplishment goes back prior to question 29. Enro spoke to some of that, and that's true. But before we move on to the how and the what of redemption that's applied to us, I want to ground that in what it is exactly Christ accomplished. What did he actually do? In, in discussing what exactly Christ accomplished, we will also address the question, for whom did Christ do this work for? Or as it's typically asked, who did Jesus Christ die for? Did he die for everybody without exception? Or did he die only for some people? That's an extremely important and relevant question. Because as I hope to begin to demonstrate to you today, how you answer the for whom question is going to reflect how you answer the what question of the atonement. The two are linked. Well, let's go back to question 29. We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. Now, one of the texts that the divines provide for us is Titus 3, 5 through 6. I'm going to expand it out a little bit because this block of text, listen to it, it covers this section in this one block of text. 
Paul writes, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, casting our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might, come, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Man, there is a lot of stuff packed into that block of text. So let's, again, let's just begin to dive in today. We're not going to exhaust it today, but let's start to dive in here. And one of the first things I want you to see from this text are the words, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. You know, some people have this notion that God the Father is just this mean, vengeful, wrathful person who's just itching to just wipe everybody out. But God the Son is more tolerant. He's more loving. And so he comes up with a plan to kind of keep his father at bay and try to save as many people as he can. Beloved, that's just complete nonsense, to put it mildly. And I think this perspective is more popular than we may even realize. Now, some people may not word it the way I just did, but you kind of get that same sense when you hear people say things like, and I hear this all the time, Oh, the Old Testament is about law and wrath, whereas the New Testament is about the coming of Christ and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Well, if you just go back and listen to the lessons we've done in the past on God, His eternal decree, creation, providence, covenant of grace, God has always been a God of grace and mercy and love. Go back and listen to Pastor JP's lessons on the covenant. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. And this plan of redemption is their plan. There is no internal struggle going on between the Father and the Son. There's complete nonsense. Go back and listen to the series I did on the eternal decree of God and creation, where I explained from Scripture that what we find in the very opening pages of our Bible in Genesis is the one eternal unchanging plan of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit being put into place in time and space. Nothing has changed in that respect. But let me also say that as Reformed, I think there's a tendency among some of us to kind of shy away from texts like John 3.16 because it's just been tortured so bad by people. But beloved, we don't need to shy away from these precious truths. John 3.16.17 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Ephesians 1, verse 4 through 5, Paul writes, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Paul, beginning in Romans, addresses those that he writes to as 
to all those in Rome who are loved by God. In Romans 5, verse 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then in Romans 8, verse, starting in verse 37, no, in all these things we were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angel, angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation were able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so one of the first things I want to highlight to you is this. I don't know, I was just impressed to say this because some of you may not feel loved today for whatever reasons. But I want you to hear these words. God loves his people. The Father is not begrudgingly saving people because Jesus Christ has worked so hard to push him in that direction. That's not the picture we get here in Scripture. There's such a sad view of God. No, God literally is moving heaven and earth to demonstrate his eternal love for his people. John Murray writes, it was of the free and sovereign good pleasure of his will, a good pleasure that emanated from the depths of his own goodness, that he chose a people to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The reason resides wholly in himself and proceeds from determinations that are peculiarly his as the I am that I am. The atonement does not win or constrain the love of God. The love of God constrains to the atonement, and it is the means of accomplishing love's determinate purpose. That's such a great line there. Do you hear what he's saying? Christ's atoning work did not win over the Father, who otherwise would have gone in a different direction. But rather, the atoning work of Christ is the very means that God has chosen and set into motion to accomplish the purpose of his love towards his chosen people. Put another way, the cross of Christ is the supreme demonstration of the love of God. Beloved, this love is not fleeting. It's not some, you know, cute puppy love that some people have. Here one day, gone the next. It's intentional, it's purposeful, it's eternal, it's unchangeable, it's sovereign, it's free. God didn't have to do this. He didn't have to save us. We don't deserve any of it. But the fact that he freely chose to set his love upon us testifies to the greatness of his goodness, to the greatness of his loving kindness. But this love is also holy. And so while on the one hand we can talk about the free and sovereign nature of God's love, that God was under no obligation to save any of us, we can in another sense talk about the necessity of the atoning work of Christ with respect to God's holiness. And so just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one and are not at odds with each other, so the holiness and love of God is not at odds. The cross of Christ not only demonstrates the love of God, 
but it also demonstrates the holiness and righteousness of God. It doesn't distract us from the love of God, but rather it demonstrates to us what true love looks like. You know, I've been thinking, you know, we, we as fallen creatures, we love people even to the point of compromising truth, of compromising our integrity, of compromising holiness. We'll do things with people and for people that we know we shouldn't be doing. And we'll just brush holiness and righteousness off to the side because we quote-unquote love that person. Friends, that's not love. That is a perverted, twisted version of love. The moment you try to justify your sinful behavior by appealing to just how much you love so-and-so is the moment you need to realize that you are no longer talking about love. You see, whether you intend to or not, when you start talking and acting that way, you've actually perverted love by pitting it against holiness and righteousness. Love and holiness are not at odds with one another. It simply can't be. God is love. And God is holy. So is God at war with himself by being love and holy? Is God insane? Does God have this internal inconsistency between love and holiness? And now he's just trying to figure out some way to reconcile the two? No. Well, why, didn't, why did Jesus have to come and die then? I'll tell you why he came and died. It's not because he's trying to reconcile some internal problem that God has. God isn't the problem. He came and died because you and I are at odds with his holiness. You and I are at odds with God's love. You and I are the problem, not him. You know, people who talk this way, and there are a lot, you read the theologians on the atonement, they, a lot of people who talk this way. God's trying to figure out some internal struggle. They have, they have projected their perverted understanding of love and holiness onto God. And rather than recognizing their twisted understanding of these things, they project it onto God and make God the problem. It's God who's trying to figure all this out. Friends, he's not trying to figure out anything. The cross work of Christ demonstrates both his love and his holiness. The cross does not, uh, or the cross demonstrates not that God has an internal conflict he's trying to resolve. But what it demonstrates is the utter seriousness of our sin and our rebellion against him. See, God's not like us. He can't just wink. He's not going to wink at sin in the name of love. Nor could he simply pretend that we are not sinners when we are. God does not and will not compromise his holiness. He must judge us for our sin and rebellion. And that's what the cross demonstrates as well as his love. Exodus 34, 6-7, The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, you have both. Yes, God is love. God forgives. But he does not do so at the expense of his holiness. Because if he did, then his love would no longer be love. It would no longer be true love. And so praise be to God that he freely chose to redeem a people and not leave every one of us to perish in our sins. And it is that rebellion, it is our sin, that brings the necessity of the crosswork of Christ. Not because of some internal conflict in God. And it's that intent and purpose that we turn to now. Again, going back to question 29, we read, we are made partakers of redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. Real quickly, I want to hone in on the words redemption purchased by Christ. What does that mean? How did Christ purchase redemption and what all did he purchase? Well, if you go to the larger catechism, you will find the parallel to this question in questions 50, uh, 57 through 65, but for sake of time, let me just read 57 through 59. Question 57, what benefits have Christ procured by his mediation? Answer, Christ by his mediation have procured redemption with all other benefits of the covenant of grace. Question 58, how do we come to be made partakers of the benefits which Christ hath procured? We are made partakers of the benefits which Christ hath procured by the application of them unto us, which is the work especially of God the Holy Ghost. And in question 59, who are made partakers of redemption through Christ. Redemption is certainly applied and effectually communicated to all those for whom Christ hath purchased it, who are in time by the Holy Ghost enabled to believe in Christ according to the gospel. So as you can see in, this, in, this, in these questions, you see the what of redemption, its name, along with all the benefits. That's the order of salvation that we're talking about. And then you see how those benefits are applied. Question 58, and then the question for whom are they applied in question 59, which speaks to the extent of the atonement. And we're going to touch on all that stuff as we go along. But because we're running out of time, in short, I just want to introduce uh, all of that with what you may call the 10,000 foot view of the atoning work of Christ. See, in the lessons that follow, we're going to hone, we're going to zoom in on the the details, the specifics of redemption. But to close out for today, I want us to consider the work of Christ from a more general perspective. Because it's this general perspective that's going to help frame what follows. And again, I'm just kind of following the outline here in Murray, but you read Robert Raymond and others, they follow a similar train of thought. John Calvin writes, for example, in his Institutes, when it is asked then how Christ, by abolishing sin, removed the enmity between God and us and purchased a righteousness which made him favorable and kind to us, it may be answered generally that he accomplished this by the whole course of his obedience. This is proved by the testimony of Paul who writes in Romans 5.19, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now why, why frame it this way? What's the point in talking about a general category or way of speaking about the redemptive work of Christ before we get into the specifics? Well, let me tell you why I think it's important. 
you were to ask many Christians today, what is the redemptive work of Christ? Many of them would probably point you to the death on the cross. That's it. His death on the cross. And that's not a wrong answer. It's just not a complete answer. And because it's not a complete answer, it can lead to other problems down the road. But the complete answer is that the work of redemption encompasses the whole of Christ's life, all that he did. Which is why Raymond entitles this section, Christ's entire life work, one righteous act of obedience. And so when you think of the redemptive work of Christ as we go on, think of the word obedience. Remember again, Romans 5.19, by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. But let's take it one step further. When you think of the obedience of Christ to atone for our sins, now think of two uh, subcategories under that, to obedience. This obedience of Christ is commonly broken down even further into these two aspects, which have typically been labeled the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. And now some people like Raymond don't like those labels because if you're not careful, they can be misleading. Because it sounds like you're saying that there were things that Christ actively pursued and accomplished, and then there were some things that were just kind of, you know, just thrown on top of him, like, like his suffering and his death, things that weren't planned, things that he's passively involved in, like an involuntary victim. But Christ was not an involuntary victim. Jesus explicitly says in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. And then in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see from this, Christ actively pursued death. He laid down his life and took it back up. He obeyed the Father even to the point of death. There's nothing passive in this. He actively pursued all these things. This was intentional on his part. And so what then is the meaning to these adjectives, active and passive? Well, remember, what does the redemptive work of Christ presuppose? We just talked about it. It presupposes our sin, our rebellion. And what is sin? We've talked about that in previous lessons. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And what is characteristic about the law of God? One is that there are positive demands that the law of God imposes on us. And two, there are penalties that God inflicts upon us for transgressing his law. And it is these two aspects that Christ satisfies with his entire life work, his one act of obedience. In the passive or penal sense, as Raymond puts it, Christ willingly took upon himself all of the penalties imposed by the law. He bore in himself by legal imputation the penalty our sins deserve. And then in Christ's active or preceptive obedience, 
Christ obeys fully and perfectly all that the law of God prescribes for us. He makes available to us a perfect righteousness before the law that is imputed to those who put their trust in him. Those who trust in Christ will be accepted as righteous because, Jesus, because of Jesus' perfect obedience and righteousness are imputed to them through faith. And those who trust in Christ will be pardoned of their sins because their sins were charged to Christ who actively and obediently bore the penalty of those sins on our behalf. Now we'll break those down even further in a later lesson. But understand the main point here. It was his entire life work, this one act of obedience that becomes the ground for the remission of sin and for our justification. Again, Murray writes, Christ as the vicar of his people came under the curse and condemnation due to sin, and he also fulfilled the law of God and all its positive requirements. In other words, he took care of the guilt of sin and perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. He perfectly met both the penal and the preceptive requirements of God's law. And it's so important that we see that because, as I said, it's going to frame the rest of this discussion. So that we, we look specifically at the details of Christ's work and for whom it was done, we will see that Christ was not merely offering up some possibility for people, whoever wants to jump on board. But no, Christ actually accomplished something for some people who would otherwise be unwilling to get on board were it not for the sovereign grace and love of our Lord. Well, five minutes over, so I'm going to end it there. <laughs>